Welcome to This Week in Intelligent Investing, where we examine timely and timeless investing topics to help you become a better investor. Enjoy authentic, unscripted discussion featuring Phil Ordway, Elliot Turner, and other thought-leading investors. Brought to you by MOI Global. And now, here's your host, John Michalczewicz. Welcome, everyone, to a new episode of This Week in Intelligent Investing. Really looking forward to another conversation and to learning with and from Elliot Turner and Phil Ordway. Phil, we're going to start with you first uh, this week. Please go ahead. Thanks, John. I thought this week I'd talk about um, something I see a lot in investing and I've been seeing it a lot in everyday life. It's something that I've been fighting and struggling with for years and hopefully been getting better at. And that's this concept of holding two competing thoughts at once. So you may or may not be familiar. There's a pretty well-worn cliche or quote out there that's often attributed to Einstein, but I don't know if he ever really said it or not. But it's that, you know, basically the the mark the mark of a well-functioning mind is the ability to hold two competing thoughts at once or some derivation of that. And, and that's all great and that's fine, but it really is interesting how many different psychological biases get wrapped up in this in this little concept, right? I mean, it's really kind of a pure form of anchoring psychologically, right? And I, I see it so often where people get really hung up on the first thought that captures their attention or that that elicits some sort of commitment or, or response from them where they really get stuck on an idea. I actually first came across this topic um, doing crossword puzzles, which is something we'll probably talk about down the road, like, you know, little mental tricks from other games that you play like chess or bridge or poker or something like that. But in crosswords, like the real trick to doing them quickly, if you want to do it in a competition or something, is not committing to an answer until you're really sure about it, right? So like the best crossword solvers in the world have this amazing ability to hold two competing or three or four competing answers in their head at once and and check to see what makes sense with the cross. And so the the same has to be true in life, right? And you see this almost every other day, right? I mean, I've I've made just a short list of, of places I've seen it. I mean, you know, certainly in politics where someone says, well, candidate A has been terrible or candidate A is from the the wrong party, so I would vote for just about anybody else, no matter how terrible it is. Um, you know, I've, I see it all the time. Hans Rosling wrote that great book, Factfulness, where, where he wrote a lot about this, and Steven Pinker and others have written about this too, where there's been, you know, very clear, demonstrable, demonstrable decline in, in things like violent crime or, you know, global poverty or childhood mortality or that sort of thing. But then there's like one bad year and people can't get it out of their mind, right? I mean, it's like, it's possible for there to be a bad year and an uptick in violent crime and still be a great trend or a great pattern over time, right? I mean, media bias, right? I mean, it's it's entirely possible for media sources to be inherently biased and be a useful source of information and still provide value, right? I was thinking about this in the context of the vaccine rollout, which we were talking about. I mean, the vaccine rollout has been both a complete mess and a total triumph of science, right? I mean, it, I think if people would stop for a minute and think about what's actually been accomplished over the last, call it, 11 months, it's pretty astonishing. But then they get hung up on, you know, all the things that have been horribly flawed and, and totally imperfect and they can't get over. And the same is true, in my opinion, of, of the pandemic response overall. I mean, there's some things that have just gone horribly wrong. And there are some things that overall have been 
quite good. And I, I guess if I had one thought that's come out of the last 12 months, I just keep coming back to this concept that I'm surprised it wasn't worse. Um, but anyway, so back back to investing and, and this idea of holding two competing thoughts at once. I mean, this has really caused a lot of problems for me. And, and hopefully, if you're explicit about it and train yourself out of it, you can get better at it over time. I mean, some ways it's tripped me up. Uh, you know, I, I'll often have this response that, okay, person A told me about an idea, a company, an industry, whatever the case may be. And I'll either think person A is an idiot, therefore the idea must be terrible, or I'll think person A is a genius and therefore the idea must be fantastic. And it's possible for person A to be an idiot and the idea to be totally valid or, or worth pursuing. Right. So, I mean, those are the two competing ideas. Just because the idea came from a source, the person's an idiot, does not mean that the idea should be disqualified. It sounds obvious when you say it like that, but I, I'm always surprised at how often I, f- I fall prey to both sides of that. Right. Company A, you know, seems like a good possible investment, but the price has gone up too much. So I've missed it. Right. I mean, it's entirely possible. It's often, po- it's almost more likely than not in many cases that the price has gone up and the opportunity is now better. So not only have you not missed it, you have to hold the idea in your head at the same time that, yes, I have missed the initial move up in price, but that isn't necessarily what you should be focusing on. It's entirely possible that something looks expensive and is still a great investment in the future. So those are two competing ideas, I think, that that a lot of lowercase or even uppercase value investors holding their heads is it has to be, you know, the exact bottom. It has to be dirt cheap. And that's what makes it a great investment. And that's just not true. Something can be more expensive than it was and still be a great investment. Something has not happened and and therefore it's bound to happen in the future or something has not happened and therefore it's due to happen in the future. I mean, these are misapplied odds or the, you know, some version of the gambler's fallacy, a misunderstanding of, of randomness and randomness and streaks um, I just started reading a great book. Um, it, it seems really interesting so far, but I did just start Ben Cohen's book called The Hot Hand. It's about understanding streaks and randomness, um, particularly it pertains to sports research, but it's it's really interesting so far. And you, you see this every day where, where somebody thinks, oh, I, I rolled you know, a, a three twice in a row, therefore I'm due to get something else. Or I flipped a coin three times in a row and I'm due to get tails because I got heads all the first three times. It's not how it works at all. And you see this conjunctive fallacy all the time in independent events. Um, you know, I, I think maybe the biggest one of all is, you know, I'm a value investor, lowercase or uppercase, however you want to define it. And growth, momentum, technical elsewhere can still be a valid framework. Maybe not for you, but in the in the world, it still has its place, right? So I, I just can't reject enough this notion that it's an either or kind of thing, right? It's either value or growth. I mean, there's just no dumber debate out there. Um, and so I think the more people can get used to holding these competing notions in their head like that, the, the better off they'll be and the fewer mistakes they'll make. And, and particularly for me, at least, it's mistakes of omission, right? Things where I knew enough, I knew better. I, I had all the tools at my disposal to act and I didn't because I was just struggling to hold two competing ideas in my head at the same time. So I'm always trying to pause and think through explicitly good old fashioned system two thinking and say, wait a minute, am I doing something here? I need a second set of analysis here. Am I doing something here that requires me to hold two competing ideas at once? And am I failing to do that? Because a lot of times it's so obvious when you just stop to take that step and say, 
A and B, they may seem at odds with each other, but both can be true at the same time, actually. And if you just stop to do that, um, it, it's really made a huge difference in, in how I've approached problems and the number of mistakes that I've made. So I'll, with that, I'll open it up to you guys. John, Elliot, what do you guys think? Are there other good examples? I know Elliot's a fan of this topic. We talked briefly on it. So what other good examples or what would you add to this? Yeah, so I mean, you know, it's something I've thought about a lot and I'm going to have to tie it to Twitter both the platform, the company, and Jack Dorsey. Um, because, you know, it's it's something that I've, like, believed in very strongly myself. And I've contemplated this topic called an ode to nuance. And I think a lot of it boils down to viewing the world, having a worldview that embraces nuance and could parse through, you know, two competing ideas and hold both at the same time, right? Exactly what you're saying. Um, so, you know, if you wanted to describe it in one word, that word's nuance. And one of the part of the uh, reason I think so much of the market has a hard time understanding and appreciating Jack Dorsey is he is one of the most nuanced thinkers of our time. And, you know, the irony of it all is you can't boil Jack Dorsey thoughts down to 140 characters. And he's the gentleman who brought this world Twitter. Um, but when he speaks so much of the time, he's he's holding two competing ideas and is able to like see the future of how the tensions resolve. Cause there's often an inherent tension to it. And so like Twitter specifically as an investment, I think so many people are wrapped up in this idea of my God, Twitter's like missed so much opportunity to execute. Therefore they're definitely not a good investment going forward. And it's like, you know, if you could embrace the idea that, Hey, actually, you know, They've missed a lot of opportunity. They've messed some things up, but I see where they're doing better. I see how they could understand their purpose and, you know, appreciate um, that uh, while there is a bad in the past, there's a path and a situation that's better. You know, it's it, it's not easy mentally to hold both ideas at the same time, and I think I think it's a struggle, but. You know, I think it really does boil down to nuance. I think a lot of the world wants things to be in bite-sized nuggets, wants things to be stated in the most black and white possible terms. Um, they want opinions. If you look at who goes on CNBC, it's not the guy who's like, well, you know, I don't really care if the market's too expensive or too cheap now. I'm interested in this stock and, you know, I'm still finding some good ideas. Like, that's boring. Um, the stuff that gets presented in media is like, a million really strong opinions that are just black and white worldviews. And so, you know, I think there's, there's a huge advantage in being able to kind of operate in a way where you don't play that game. You don't think that way. You just kind of ignore it. Um, and whether that be both narrowing the funnel of these really strong opinions to only certain areas that you think are consequential to you, or whether it's like only really acting on certain kinds of, you know, narrowing the funnel on what you act on. Um, so whether it's on thoughts or in actions, one way or another, being able to parse through this need for everything to be so strongly stated, um, you know, I think, I, I think it's interesting. I think it's a good place to be. Um, and I find a general allure to situations where there is nuance, where there is an opportunity to hold two competing ideas at once. And, you know, I think back to like the 04 election with John Kerry, where he was like accused of being a flip flopper. It's like, that's not a bad thing. That's kind of a good thing. 
Um, you know, I, I think there's just an aversion to that kind of thinking. So I, I love it. I love the topic. I think it's incredibly important. Um, and I like being, I, I have a very strong opinion behind the idea that nuance is awesome. Yeah, context is obviously crucial in all these things. And that's why if, you, if you're trying to boil it down to talking points or, you know, even just simple frameworks, that's where you often get to this concept. So I love, I love the idea that it's an ode to nuance. That's a phrase that I'm going to have to steal from you and start using because that's exactly right. I mean, the other thing I always tell people that are just trying to start out in this world is that in investing, almost everything that matters seems like a paradox or can be, you know, almost contradicted at times. And so you have to get used to it right away that, you know, all the important ideas, all the big ideas that you have, it's going to be, if you're thinking about them correctly, you're going to be able to poke holes in them. And you just have to get used to holding, you know, two competing ideas in your head at the same time and do it as quickly as you can, because there's no way around it. Yeah, there's that famous Harry Truman quote, like, give me a one-handed economist, because, you know, every economist is like, on the one hand, on the other hand, it's like, that's not a bad thing. <laughs> Um, you know, we're facing, especially in what we do, you know, I think this is a recurrent theme, but we're, we're making decisions where there's no knowable true answer to things. Like we are operating where, you know, we're facing imperfect information in uncertain world. And we're trying to like, actually put our tails on the line in the face of that. And, you know, if you don't approach that with nuance, if you approach it with, I, to me, like nuance and humility are tied at the hip in that sense. They definitely are, yeah. And you know, it's, it raises you raise another good point there. And I've I've given this advice or had this conversation with a lot of people, you know, particularly recent college graduates or business school students um, through my class, where they're trying to navigate this world. And and often we come back to this idea of how do I pitch an idea? And and there was a book written about this recently, how to make the perfect pitch. I think was the title, Paul Sonkin, and and. It's a really important topic, actually, because the ability to communicate your ideas up the food chain is absolutely critical. And then as you make that switch from idea generator or recommender to actually owning the decision, that's a really tricky balance, too. And I've thought long and hard. I mean, I, I used to work with someone who said, I'll make up my own mind. I just want your your deepest conviction. I want your, you know, your enthusiasm, whatever. And, and that I understand that has a lot of merit. I also saw it abused a couple times pretty badly because, you know, somebody was just trying to game the system. It was late in the game, so to speak, and they were swinging for the fences. And so it can get pretty dangerous from the portfolio manager, manager's perspective if all the ideas are being spoon-fed to you in a certain mold or framework for the benefit of of the pitchee or the pitcher, I should say. It, it can just get difficult. So, I mean, I think that's where you know, the, the best interviewers, if it's possible, have always said, you know, just tell me what you own. Yeah, you know, I, don't, I don't need to hear, you know, some long detailed pitch or tell me what you own and why. And if, if somebody doesn't own anything, and I guess that's a whole other issue, you have to work around that. But that just cuts through a lot of the noise because as any sort of portfolio manager, investor, decision maker, you're always going to be have, you're always going to have to have competing ideas at the same time. And, and you have to find some sort of framework to to weigh the pros and cons and the trade-offs and all the unintended consequences that are inevitably going to come about. I mean, you mentioned it, Phil. Um, it's really that Scott Fitzgerald quote that the test of a, a intelligence is the ability to hold two ideas, opposing ideas uh, at the same time and still retain 
an ability to function. And I feel like it applies to investing in a huge way because I can just go through my portfolio and I have opposing ideas basically for each of my investments where um, there are some there are pros and cons and ultimately the ability to function means being able to decide is this still a good investment even though there are some things that kind of you want to keep an eye on that could end up being concerning on, or could actually change uh, the thesis entirely. Um, so I encounter this all the time when it comes to investing. I mean, one sector as an example that I think, um, you know, I've struggled with, but I've I'm kind of gotten around to a decision there is, is banks, where um, I feel pretty strongly that what banks do is basically a commodity, um, the business of money. And that fintech is going to render it a commodity in a lot of ways where you're going to have apps uh, on phones like Revolut in the UK kind of amassing a lot of assets and uh, and then banks might be on the back end, but maybe not earning as much as in the past. But on the other hand, uh, banks have been very cheap, uh, which you know, makes me uh, take note. And also I have the view that long-term interest rates are likely to rise and everyone tells me that would be wonderful for banks. So it's really been weighing these kind of opposing ideas on in my mind and coming to some sort of a conclusion uh, because, you know, these stocks will do something. Uh, they'll, you know, either perform or they won't. Um, but you know there will be uh, some some consequences there. Um, other examples, I mean, just often um, concern about the macro situation, but then finding things on a micro level that I get really excited about. How do you kind of balance that and still are able to to function? Or if you think about the political dysfunction that we've seen. And then you still have a good economy somehow um, in a lot of ways. Or uh, one of my favorites, um, you know, all the money printing we've had going on. And yet uh, opposing that is kind of the deflationary impact of technology. So what what will happen? You know, are we actually going to see inflation? That's that's a big question, but there's definitely opposing ideas here. And um and I think, you know, we, we really need to stay humble and um, kind of not uh, buy very much into just one set of ideas. Um, you know, one, one area is like cryptocurrencies where you have Charlie Munger basically saying this is complete nonsense. And, you know, I happen to agree with him, but I'm staying, I'm trying to stay humble as well, um, you know, but I feel like you know, the conclusion there for me is I don't need to do anything there, you know, and so my opinion doesn't really matter. Um, I have other ways of, of investing and making money. So maybe sometimes if, if it's really too tough, then you just kind of remove yourself and uh, move on. So that's that's my take. So do either of you guys have a good trick other than the one I mentioned, which is I just make this really dedicated, explicit effort. It's one of, you know, a handful of things that I just kind of run through in a mental checklist anytime something like this comes up, any sort of topic, right? Whether it's investing related or not, I've just kind of made it a habit to say, all right, stop, you know, actually engage your brain here for a second and say, are there two competing ideas here that I'm struggling to hold in my little brain at the same time? And that has helped me avoid a lot of problems. Do you guys have any other 
tricks for engaging this sort of thought process so that it becomes second nature and, and kind of hardwired in? Well, I'd point out that your trick is actually two tricks, not one. Uh, first, it's self-awareness. And the second is you, you make an explicit exercise out of something hypothetical. So there's two tricks in there. And I think they're both extremely helpful. Um, I also, you know, personally, I, you know, when you back in the day faced with really tough decisions, they'd say fold a piece of paper in half, which we, you know, never use paper for anything anymore and write pros and cons on each side. Right. Um, and I think John basically said it, uh, how on each investment, he knows both the pros and cons. And it's like, you know, when you think about that, what that means in the market, I mean, if anything existed without any cons, it would probably be priced that way. And there's not really much opportunity there. So, you know, to be aware of both the pros and cons, to be, you know, aware in yourself of whether you're seeking out both sides. Um, I, you know, I can't think of anything more perfect than that um, in terms of embracing nuance. I also think it's helpful to kind of narrow what you speak to. I feel when I was younger, I was very willing to give an opinion on everything. And I didn't necessarily have an opinion, but like anytime I would be asked about something, I would give an answer that was an opinion. Um, and I've been, you know, I think, I think saying, I don't know a lot of times is, you know, the ultimate way to truly have that, uh, because I don't know, doesn't mean you don't try to know. Um, it's, it's, you know, being self-aware that you don't truly have enough information to give an opinion. Therefore, you know, it starts your process of inquiry and discovery. Yeah, that's a great point. I was very guilty of that for sure. And I think it's natural for people that are either inherently opinionated or just really eager and, and trying to jump in there and contribute. And if you've done a lot of thinking and reading, I mean, you, you see this a lot when, when kids go off to college or something, right? And they come home after that first semester and think they've acquired all the world's knowledge in the first three months or something. I was, guilty I was as def- charged. Exactly. Yeah. I was definitely guilty of that. And I've tried and tried and tried to wean myself off of that problem over the years. And I'd have to leave it to others as to whether I've had any success there. But yeah, I've, I've always tried to, to, to tell people that I don't know, but I'll find out is the right answer to a whole lot of questions. Well, at least for you guys, it's in the past. I feel like I'm still struggling with that. (laughs) Hey, it's a a work in progress, John. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. Uh, But I'll just say maybe to end this segment, I mean, one, you know, if you look at a lot of what's happening in the market right now with companies that are losing money but have just appreciated uh, tremendously, um, if you if you apply that to opposing ideas concept uh, to those investments, I think a lot of the investors in those companies are not actually doing that because they're just taking the idea that these are great businesses, they're growing fast. But on the other hand, they're not really looking at the idea that you know the stock might be quite cheap, and so um, the business continuing to perform may not actually result in great investment performance. So. That would be uh, something where you know folks that are looking at these high flyers could maybe add that uh, opposing idea and see where they kind of land. So let's uh, move on to Elliot uh, for your topic of the week. Sure. Um, 
you know, I want to talk about something. I'm not exactly sure how to name it, but uh, what I'd like to get into is a mental model for porting knowledge, ideas, and accumulated wisdom from one perhaps investment to another or one idea, one domain to another. Um, and I really do want to keep it to the investment context. And I think the best way to start the conversation is to illustrate a couple examples. So, you know, apologize again for hammering on some of the same stocks. I'll, I'll be sure to point out one where it didn't work quite as well, but it, it was interesting. Um, you know, how did I get to Roku and how did I get to LiveRamp for that matter? I was doing a deep dive on the trade desk. I was learning everything I could know about the trade desk. I was speaking to people in the industry. Uh, I was reading, you know, all the trade publications relevant to online digital advertising. And, you know, as I was working on the trade desk, uh, LiveRamp kept coming up at the time. They were just a subsidiary of Ax uh, Axiom. Um, and, you know, specifically Roku kept coming up in interesting ways in terms of both the personnel they were hiring to build out their advertising uh, infrastructure and the steps they were taking in advertising and the way companies were viewing the opportunity to give and commit budget to Roku. And so, you know, how did my work on Roku didn't start as me saying like, oh, Roku is an interesting company. It was just an outgrowth of having done a whole lot of work on the trade desk, which, you know, I should point out, I had a very brief, very small position uh, that went well, but not, you know, like compared to what the stock did. It was basically meaningless and consequential. It was tiny. I never truly got conviction in that idea. Um, but this idea that working on one thing uh, could inform something else is really important. And so one of the things I was introduced to as well is not just might it be important in like, you know, approximate cause for where you go next, but 10 years forward, if you start keeping track of and start, um, you know, building files that are what I'd call not specific and not generic, but timeless, that are pieces of wisdom that could accumulate. And I'm thinking specifically, you want to pay attention to really good operators and people and think about where they go next, right? Where's their next move? Um, you know, if you've had a really good experience with someone at one of the companies you're invested in and they really kind of stand out as a shining star, you know, pay attention to what job they take next if they do take a next job. Um, you know, stuff like that could be really interesting, could be really powerful. I don't think I've been around long enough doing it long enough to definitely get there. Um, but, you know, someone like Stan Chia going from Amazon to Grubhub was a really interesting hire uh, for Grubhub. And, you know, it's something that you could pay attention to as an investor if you're aware of the people and personnel behind it. You know, understanding uh, who are key players in industries, who as companies, like what pieces, what uh, pay attention to what people say they do or don't have uh, in one area and think about it uh, elsewhere. You know, one, one investment that I ended up in um, that didn't go quite as well. Sorry, the kids just got home and are quite excited by the weather. But uh, one investment that didn't go quite as well on that front, you know, my investment in Walgreens was informed by my research on Teva uh, Pharmaceuticals, where they specifically highlighted the Walgreens Boots merger as giving the kind of scale and potential to wring even more margin out uh, on on the uh, generics, which is really where, you know, most of these players make make their profit pool. And so, you know, that was interesting. That led me down a hunt that I hadn't expected to go on when I first started there. 
Um, so, you know, I really look for these kinds of things. I try to pay attention to them. I've made it an explicit part of my process where, you know, back to that point uh, when we were talking about um, holding two competing ideas about, you know, both self-awareness and, um, you know, being explicit, I make it a point to ask myself a question. Might there be an angle unrelated to this company that I'm learning about right now where I should be applying that knowledge? Um, and, you know, you'll see when you start doing that, it, it starts happening time and time again. And I think you could run through a list of your portfolio, run through a list of the companies you've worked on and be like, oh, you know, I should have been making the connection between what I learned about, you know, online marketing uh, in uh, like Twitter and applied it to some of the things that do or don't work for like Angie Home Advisor, right? So yeah, that's the general point I'd, I'd really emphasize. I don't think enough people do this sort of stuff. Um, I think a lot of people focus on, you know, they'll pick a company to do a deep dive on. Perhaps one trick to get around that is instead of just focusing on a company, uh, take one step higher in your work and focus on an industry and look at all the profit pools in the industry. Think about how those profit pools are divided and who creates the most value for their stakeholders in their ecosystem. Um, you know, so try to think about how you could incorporate that into your analysis and how that might lead you to kind of alter your process, if ever so slightly, to make more knowledge that's buildable, that compounds, and that's inevitably portable to you as an investor. Um, and, you know, it's kind of like, I mean, it's definitely, it's entirely derivative of, you know, Charlie Munger telling us to use mental models. There he's speaking to take the big ideas from different domains and, you know, understand them and know how to apply them. Uh, but that could be, I, I view this as like the micro version of that and mental models is like the macro version. Um, and so, you know, just curious how you guys uh, see this, how you use it and, uh, and and anything else that you might want to riff off of. Yeah, it's really interesting. I, this topic probably doesn't come up enough unless it comes up in the context of like a bragging kind of expose into somebody's research project. And I think that it gets pretty silly, right? When it becomes a contest about like how much you've done in this world. But I, and so I don't have a great answer as to what the single best way to do this is. So I can describe how I do it. And then I'd love to hear what you guys do. I mean, I, I kind of have a multi pronged approach to it. So I, I have a digital and then a physical process to try to capture everything that I'm figuring out and everything I'm learning and everything I'm reading uh, and then make it searchable and sortable and so that I can go back through it. And, uh, you know, it's funny, when I first started this thing, this effort, you know, this was, what, 14 years ago now when I first started in the industry and I was printing out all this stuff and I was keeping these copious logs and I actually kept a, a, a notebook where I wrote down literally exactly what I read every day. I did that for years and the, my old general counsel made fun of me like, what are you doing? You're never going to go back and revisit this stuff. And I'd, I'd keep old, literally if I missed a week of newspapers or something, right? I'd keep them for however long it took. And sometimes I wouldn't circle back to them for months or I'd keep old. Just yesterday, I was cleaning out old um, trade publications, uh, some insurance industry stuff um, where I wanted to you know, go back and revisit it. And I've found that it's just, probably the single best learning tool I have is to read something once, 
file it away so that I can access it and then go back to it months or years later and see how history actually developed against what seemed probable or or certain even at the time. So it's it's really worked wonders for me. So anyway, I keep a, a, a huge repository of stuff online. It's been great now because it's all just on the cloud and it's a lot harder when I had to plug in a physical flash drive and, and move it around with me. But I, I just went in and double checked and this really only encompasses, some of this stuff would go back 10 or more years. Most, I guess it, it really did start back then, but I'm up to, I have a two track process. So to Elliot, your point about people and things that you're tracking. So I have one subset of folders that's around people, specific people, themes, um, categories of research. So not pertaining to a specific company per se. And in that uh, subset of file folders, I have 6,747 files in 95 individual folders. And then if you go to the company side, so this is something a little more specific and actionable. Uh, that's 14,537 files on 881 individual companies. And I've learned over time that that sounds really cool and impressive and is absolutely worth nothing. And so I've learned to try to really winnow that down and really focus more time on the best things and less time on everything else because you know all the good ideas and all the good returns are just a tiny fraction of each one of those five folders. So yes, you need to turn over a lot of rocks. And yes, I would suggest that anyone starting their investment process go through that and really try to build it up. But you have to be mindful of the fact that you know there are vastly diminishing returns. Um, the other thing I do is I take just a ton of notes. So beyond the the old reading log that I mentioned, I keep a very detailed, very you know up to date log of everything I'm thinking, reading, and doing. And it's you know marked up. It's color coded. It's got little sticky tabs on it so I can find it. It's explicitly dated. Anything that goes in there has got a date attached to it, so I know when I wrote it down and what I was thinking at the time. And that contains everything, right? Books, company research notes, people, conversations. Um, and that's enormously helpful to be able to access that and go back to it. And I do keep that actually physically. I've messed around with all sorts of digital solutions there. Um, and I, I do keep some of those files that I mentioned earlier that are digital. I also keep, when I'm reading them physically, I'll keep a printout in a, in a file folder for certain things. But I've tried to get away from that just became overwhelming. Once you move offices once or twice, you kind of get sick of more boxes than you could imagine. So um, anyway, that's that's the process I've used and it's really helped. So tell you your point, I mean, when I would think about a company or an idea, a research process, a topic, and somebody, or, or to your point, when an executive that really knows what they're doing moves from job A to job B and you've got a, a set of notes from a conversation you had with them seven years ago, which has happened to me more than once, it's probably happened at least a dozen times, it's absolutely invaluable to be able to put your hands on that kind of information relatively quickly. And uh, I would highly recommend it to everybody. Yeah, I'll jump in. I, I mean, what I think about when, when Elliot, you mentioned porting mental models and concepts from one investment to the next, I kind of really think about investment setups that have worked well for me and that might apply to uh, something I'm looking at in the present. Like Elliot, you talked extensively about the post-hype sleeper setup. That's just one example. Uh, there's a lot of um, setups that I've kind of internalized um, that I look for. So that's really what I'm thinking about um, for this topic. One one caution that I would mention um, is 
to not overfit past successes to current ideas because I've made mistakes by, you know, having a really big success, um, taking that as a mental model and then going around looking for something that's like that. And um, But when you try to kind of fit that onto something, um, you can overfit and then actually make a mistake. So as long as you kind of um, stay objective and have a bunch of different um, setups and models to work with rather than just a hammer, um, I think that's that's a, a concept that's worked really well uh, for me. I'm so glad you said that because that's basically the part I left out of my prepared spiel, um, which is that's really important to me as well. Uh, reasoning by analogy, understanding similarities from one situation to the next. There will be times I think you know it's only possible to build through experience. I don't think I could have done this a decade ago. But like when I look at Twitter today, I'm like, this is exactly like my experience with PayPal in 2015 through 2017. And I could understand, you know, the elements and draw the parallels, but also with self-awareness, hopefully could point out, you know, where there are true uh, gaps in the story, right? So you don't want to get, like you said, too far down that path. And I think it's extremely important. I think you start getting familiar with spotting these kinds of patterns and understanding them. Um, and it gives you, I don't think it gives you answers. It gives you questions. It leads you to ask the right questions and try to explore the right angles to the story side of investing um, and to try to understand things in, in a different dimension. So um, thank you for saying that, John. It's so, so true, so perfect. Um, and yeah, Phil, it, that is really impressive how diligently you've taken notes. Um, I aspire to be that good with note-taking. Um, I started with Evernote and was really, really good for a long time. And my experience with the product got clunky. So I waned uh, in my enthusiasm for note-taking. And I since picked it back up in, you know, really just a more fragmented way. Um, I feel like I need to explore like Notion or Rome, uh, these ideas that inherently are built for drawing connections or these platforms, not ideas, these platforms that are built for drawing connections and threads between ideas and files and concepts and all that. You know, that's, I think, how my brain works and how I hope to keep building muscles for it to work better down the line. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's that's a superpower, Phil. Yeah, well, I, I mean, let me, uh, kind of similar to, to John's caveat, I, I'll, I'll push back on it because I, as much as it's worked for me in some regards, I do think it comes with some significant drawbacks. And I think it gets really ridiculous when you start having a, a measuring contest about I read more than the other person and so I'm a better investor or something, right? I mean, I, so I, I've I've seen the, the downfall of it where I'm so interested in learning everything there is to know about an idea or a company and I'm so self-absorbed and obsessed in my own little process about cataloging at all this beautiful knowledge that I'm accumulating that the world just passes me by. So I think there's some happy medium for most people between the type of person that we probably all knew in school who would sit in the front row and take the most beautiful handwritten or typed notes that were color-coded and indexed and could serve as a second textbook and would get 
a really good grade on the test and then be totally useless in the real world <laughs> and couldn't do anything mm-hmm. other than parrot back what was on a multiple choice test or something. <laughs> and then at the other end of the spectrum, you know, there's the gunslinger who never writes anything down, never pauses to actually pursue kind of a structured process that's repeatable and just makes decisions on the fly and is always shooting from the hip. And and that doesn't, I mean, they both have a lot of merit. I don't fall on either extreme. And I, I do kind of actually try to force myself into the middle because there are times where it's just not worth it to be as diligent as I have been in some cases in the past to take the notes, to do the reading, to pull the trigger on something needs to be done quickly, right? I mean, so that's where it's just a judgment game. And that's where, you know, when you start coming down to, automated decision-making in a lot of fields, if it truly is repeatable, then yes, it can be automated. But where there's judgment involved, I'm, I'm a little more hesitant. And so um, I would just caution everybody, like, look, I don't think it makes sense for most people anyway to either be the super goody two-shoes in the front of the room taking a ridiculous amount of color-coded notes for its own sake. And I also don't think it works for most people to be the gunslinger who's making decisions off the cuff. I think for most people, you want to be somewhere on the spectrum in between. And I may be a little towards the former than the latter, um, but I am making a conscious effort to not be too extreme in either direction. Yeah, I think that's the right idea, right? Again, nuance, <laughs> hold two competing yeah, ideas. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. The problem sure. with being the gunslinger is that you can't ever truly assess whether your exactly. thought process was right. <laughs> that's where I think they really fall short is that I don't think there's ever any I mean, there's not as much learning in progress as there otherwise would be, right? Because it's so easy to convince yourself after the fact that the decision either worked or didn't work for some reason that just wasn't true at the time. And so if you're not documenting if you're not documenting it and you're not diligent about it, I just don't think you make as much forward progress as you otherwise would. But there are plenty of people that, you know, get far in life without doing it. So I'm not dismissive of it. It's kind of like the spectrum bit from... Uh a George Bush kind of thinking from the gut and uh, becoming a librarian, which is not <laughs> the purpose of things either. Um, you know, I think we we do need to acknowledge the time we live in and how easy it is to find information that we need in a, at any moment. So we have, you know, pretty much the world's, all the world's information at our fingertips in a lot of ways. And that's different from 30, 40 years ago, where you really did need to keep a lot of things because you may not find them again. Um, So that's kind of the trade-off that I try to make is just the time investment in, you know, filing away things um, that, you know, will be obviously easily accessible versus um, kind of just Googling them again when you need them. So I feel like you know, with my note-taking, I'm just really focusing on the context and the connections um, and things that I can't Google, frankly. So things that, you know, stuff that I'm thinking that's that's important to me that, that would get lost uh, if I didn't file it. But anything that can be Googled, I kind of don't really um, have it anywhere. That's such a powerful point, John. I've thought about this so much. When I was a kid, I like memorized the Encyclopedia of Hockey, and I could tell you who won the Art Ross Trophy in 1972. I can't remember that now, so don't test me on it anymore. Uh, But, you know, I had to memorize things. I memorized phone numbers of everyone important and all sorts of stuff, right? 
and you know, my dad would say I memorized way too many unimportant things, but that's neither neither here nor there. Um, but you know, instead these days I've focused on remembering pathways and remembering how to access and find things that are of value, uh, more so than, you know, obviously still remembering plenty of things as I can, but you know, I think, I think that's the nature of like, you know, the computer and our phone as part of an outsourced brain. And we live in symbiosis with it as, in contrast to, you know, merely having it as a parallel uh, tool. Um, and that's really different. And I think, you know, if you fast forward, you know, humans evolve ever so slowly, but I do think it's going to have evolutionary impacts on how people think and operate. And, uh, you know, it's kind of weird. It has to, right? Yeah. I mean, it's fascinating because I think that's the difference between just even a relatively short generation. I mean, we didn't grow up with that access. You had to memorize that kind of stuff. Even if you had a hockey almanac at your fingertips, it was a clunkier process than shouting out to Siri or Alexa or just looking it up on Google, right? So it's definitely, and, the, and some of the psychological research about how it does shape the malleable part of your brains is really fascinating. I don't know what the implications are going to be for that in the future, but you're right. I mean, it, it would be foolish not to incorporate that into our investment process. And John, I mean, to your point, if I mean, I used to be way more of a pack rat when things were scarce, right? I mean, I'm old enough such that 10 years ago even, it was relatively harder to find something like a quarterly earnings call transcript from three years ago or something, right? And now you can put your fingertips on it anytime you want, your eyeballs on it anytime you want. So, I mean, I used to be super diligent about saving down all that stuff or printing it out. And now it's like, you know, if I if I take the time to really read something in a detailed way, and it, particularly if it's something a little more permanent rather than something really fleeting, like a quarterly earnings call, you know, then I will devote some time to it. But otherwise, yeah, I mean, just it's always going to be out there floating around. So you don't need to really be quite as diligent in cataloging it. Yeah, I mean, nowadays you you even have archive.org, which basically will show you past versions of a website. So even stuff that's not supposed to be found can still be found. Oh, it's there. Yeah. It's, that is a great research trick and tool, by the way, using archive.org. That is one of my secrets. I love, love it. Um, you could find out a lot. You could see the evolution of what's important for companies by seeing what their website looked like at different points in time. And you could find when certain like pathways or products were launched from companies even before they got launched publicly by searching if it made its way into archive. Also, you could find any Grateful Dead concert ever recorded. So that's pretty awesome for me. <laughs> yeah, sorry for spilling the secret, but... Uh... I mean, it's just how far we've come as a civilization. I mean, I remember as a kid, I was I was literally cutting out um, articles from the newspaper um, and gluing them into a, a a book that I was keeping. a scrapbook. Yeah, a scrapbook. Um, yeah. And you know, these days, um, so we've 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 lost a lot, but we've gained even more. Early COVID, I was with my daughters, especially the, the six-year-old. Uh, we did scrapbooking as like just an activity because I do think it's fun and it's a good way to kind of like cement things in your brain. The more physical and the more like engaged you get with the substance and the material, I feel like the more etched it gets. Um, so we do lose something and not doing that anymore. But yeah, 100%. It's kind of interesting to think about how different it is now versus then and the good and the bad that comes with it. 
All right. Well, guys, thank you so much for another uh, great discussion. I hope uh, everyone listening enjoyed it as well. Talk to you guys next week. Take care. Thank you for listening to This Week in Intelligent Investing, brought to you exclusively by MOI Global, the research-driven membership organization. Learn more at moiglobal.com.